1935, the Lions win the NFL championship. The Detroit Tigers take the World Series. The Red Wings bring home Lord Stanley's Cup. Joe Lewis begins his rise to world domination. This transforms the Motor City into Detroit, City of Champions. <laughs> Crack of the bat. We are off and running, putting it in the ground. <laughs> All the golfer terminology. That's it. Yep. There's not so, a there's not a ton of golfer like metal like uh, I just hear sound that sound effects. I just hear that bat and I'm like, oh, here yeah. we go. <laughs> Off and run. It's not the ding of my email at least. Yeah, oh, I hate I when I do that. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's Detroit City of Champions, the podcast. I'm Jamie Flanagan, Charles Avison, and just uh, rolling around in 1935. Uh, We're am- getting there at some amazing, point. With Walter Hagen. Amazing <laughs> stuff. Well, he had he was such an innovator in the sport. And, and and why he's uh, should be more well known. Oh, dude, he's amazing. Every and every I mean every single. We, like we got a couple of great stories today too. But he's, dude, we've seen it. This guy was professional golf. Right, right. But he's like a ghost. Um, yeah. As far as like knowledge of today, he he. You know, he'll come up in movie or his his name is on the board in a movie. Yeah. But not always as prominent as. As as we're as we're discovering, he should be. I mean, he's the Babe Ruth of golf. Right. He is like the. I mean, he's the. Actually, I take it back. I think he's more. I, I take it back. In in retrospect, because I've been saying he's the Babe Ruth of golf. Mm. I think he is more along the lines of like a Ty Cobb of golf. Okay. Because he because we're like uh, in the next episode we're going to be talking about a little bit about how the basically like. He like right after like when Hagen's starting to finish up like well not finish up but in the twenties late late twenties and thirties yeah what starts to emerge are these because of like the influence of the home run in baseball like the home run just becomes massive because of Babe Ruth mm-hmm. that it kind of ushers in in golf and a similar era of these like big power smashers like these big power drivers and like Hagen was like going man this is a whole new era like these guys are just just smashing the ball you know yeah. like. And so it, it was kind of like that. Like he, you know, he ushered in like this whole new professional world of golf, and then it was like you know the next generation of like big hitters and all this that kind of took over after he was there. But so I think that he's more. I, I mean, you could. I guess you could kind of like kind of mash a cop, you know, slight, like a combination of Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth. But he was the Walter Hagen of golf. Yes. You know I mean? Yeah. Like he's like his own guy. Like he's the guy. This is. You know, you, we showed the like the, the picture of the knight in armor where he's ushering in the poor peasant through the door. Yeah, you know, he's the guy that br- he ushered in the world of like of big money golf. I mean, it's undisputed. Every single person talks about this is the guy, and every single example we talked about how I mean, he this is the, like before he came along, golf was like you know, an, kind of an aristocratic game. Amateurs were like, you know, professionals were viewed as just, you know, pure mercenaries and kind yeah. of like the dregs of the society. <laughs> and then when, and then he turned it into an incredibly like respectable, legitimate, you know, sport uh, and, and ushered in this era of big money golf. And I mean, every, and we've already seen it every single step of the way. Like this guy is involved with every single thing that we regard as like normal in the world of golf he was there for like the founding of it <laughs> you know he was there it was like the just the simple idea of of people paying money in the gallery to watch the golfers play incredibly important that's just that sport. just that he was yeah. like yeah we I, and he was the biggest earner when they were doing that you yeah. know? he's like during world war one they're sort of you were just doing relief funds for you know to just charge admission to raise money for the you know for the war for red cross and they're like, huh, we have an idea here. And Hagen's like, I raised like, you know, all this money. 
he was a top earner, and they're like, and he's like, we might be on to something when the war is over, <laughs> you know. But I mean, it's just yeah. it's just fascinating how he exactly he is. He is in the very he is the in the he is the the dead center of everything that's happening in the world of golf, and it's just all kind of whirling around him. And the people that he met, you know, the people like he's just he meet he just knows everybody, man. Yeah, he just knows everybody. And, and <laughs> so he's as important to golf as uh, our listeners are to the podcast. There you go. <laughs> no, yes, and if no, he was I around, he would like it. and subscribe. And the viewers, <laughs> yes, the people watching and listening to the podcast. Yes. Just, no, I just want to say thanks. Uh, Absolutely. And like, subscribe. Uh, you're the reason. So, yeah, every uh, every like, every every subscribe, every share, Every person you every that you tell about the podcast, it really helps. Which you know, it's a they say it's you know it's tough to build. You know, it's the first like ten thousand or whatever the toughest to get sure. to. But once you sort of build up a certain pile of listeners and viewers, then it starts to really explode. You know, yeah. so so we're you know every single like we are at the point where every single like and subscribe and all this really helps. They, so we appreciate they, everything. Yep. So yeah. So thank you to everybody who's uh, tuned in at some point or another. Uh, found their way through the shows. Uh, maybe purchased some Detroit City of Champions merch, like the the blazon. Yeah, is that's, that's it, what, yeah, the blazon. That's what he calls it. The blazon. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 crest this is the City of Champions that uh, Chris um, coat helped, of arms uh, expert. Yeah, put together uh, available wearingfunny.com. dot uh, com. That's a, a good spot to go for uh, some cool Detroit City of Detroit uh, City of Detroit Detroit City of Champions gear. Yeah. The website, Detroit City of Champions. You got some T-shirts and the books up there uh, as well. Yeah. People can get a hold of just in time for the holidays. People listen whenever. But yep. uh, And if you're in the Detroit area, come check us. Check me out. at the. I'm always at the uh, – I'm, I'm most of the time I'm at the uh, 12 Oaks. Uh, there's a store called Inspire Marketplace at 12 Oaks Mall. I'm there five days a week. And then uh, the other two days a week, I'm at the Partridge Creek store. <laughs> so I'm at you know pretty much every day doing – Selling books and talking baseball and doing all kinds of stuff in the store. So, come on up and uh, it's just come up have a conversation. Tell but us it's the Hague, yeah. the Hague, Walter, telling the the story um, of himself, right? Yeah, so the Hague himself. A, That's a, a lot of the a lot of what we're pulling is coming from uh, the book. That, yeah, talk uh, about. I mean, as far as the primary it. source goes, yeah. this, it doesn't get any more primary than this. Yeah, he, this he is wrote his the book. Thing. Yeah. yeah, and he's. I mean, he's fairly self deprecating in the book too. Like he talks sure. about his. Highs and lows, you yeah. know. I mean, um, and then it's like his sort of like you know, ex- his like sort of uh, extracurricular activities, should we say? He's yeah. like, it kind of harkens to a different era because, and he's like, ah, we went to the bar. Well, yeah, like, we've got a couple of risque component stories today yeah. where he's like, he, you know, he's kind of going, yeah, you know, we were out these girls, or whatever, oh, but he doesn't, right but he, you know, he, <laughs> he kind of read between the lines as far as what they're doing. Okay. But it, but that's it's kind of come, it's kind of harkens to a different era where. You know, nowadays, like every single thing is like blown up. Like you know, they people, the reporters, and um, you know, they look for, they dig through people's garbage cans for everything. Oh my gosh! And so it just kind of harkens back to a different era where it's like, um, you know, you can kind of read between the lines for some of the stuff, but he does. It's uh, that's not like, you know, he, it's just kind of like a, it's just kind of giving you like a little idea. Mm-hmm. But it's like his personal life. Like it's not, you know, it's none of your business. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that's how it used to be. Was. Usually, I mean, this this the sort of extracurriculars were a little bit off, unless it was some kind of a major scandal. Sure, um, it was somewhat off limits. I mean, just that wasn't. It just kind of was kind of frowned on. You yeah. want to focus on the sport more than anything. Another interesting thing about golf uh, compared to what we were talking about, um, 
I'll give it to hockey too. Uh, more of an international sport. Totally. So, so baseball, you know, U.S. dudes playing a U.S. game. Football, American football, U.S. dudes playing yep. a U.S. game. Hockey, uh, Canadians coming over here yep. <laughs> to play a Canadian game yeah. in U.S. towns uh, back in this era. Uh, so that was that was a little more international because you had a lot of Canadians. Totally. Uh, and but golf. Uh, you know, Truly you're talking about you know the French Open and the the, yep. the British Open, and Australia, the US Open. Australian and Opens. And so stuff. they're going. He's traveling all over the world, and these other golfers are traveling all over the world and coming here. And so people are, are are meeting and seeing people from other cultures. Uh, I think it's fascinating. It is, and it, it's uh, the fight. Like Walter, you know, he went to to do the British Open and wasn't treated very well. The guy before him, the year before, was treated even worse. Yeah. and uh, he's like, "Well, I'm going to win it," and didn't win it, but then did eventually. Yeah, a couple of times, but then you know, British guys are winning the U.S. Open, um, and so that rivalry just really ramps up, and it's uh, totally. How's that getting us? Uh, well, that's where we're yeah. in 1927, right? Yeah, that's where we're. So that's kind. Of, you know, we've one. You know, one of the sort of main themes we've gone over just on so many occasions here. I mean, one of the primary themes that we have seen thus far has been this. You know, as you say, this. You know, this, especially with Britain. You know, with England and Scotland, they. You know, there's this. There's. They're absolutely. You know, this is the birth of golf. They've got pride. This is their game. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and, and you know, basically, the main the main switch came during World War One, because and it's like when the British golfers came back from World War One, and that's when they started doing the the Open, the British Open. Um, that's when all of a sudden they realized that like the Americans have come a long way in four yeah. years Uh-oh. because all because before that, you know, there was a there was a like. The first American to win a British Open, or the first American, you know, the you know, oh my God, you know, he the first American to win a U.S. Open when there's British guys there, you know, <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, we, like when we we saw what that, you know, the greatest game ever played, you know, the um the we met the whole thing, and, and he's you know like the fact that he won a, Brit, mm. a U.S. Open, and there's all these British superstars there was like just the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. So yeah, but during World War One. The British find out that you know the, that there's a, that the the Americans are not only playing like you know led by Walter Hagen as the greatest golfer in the game you know the greatest American golfer not only had they changed um, had they become you know dramatically improved players but they had their own style mm. like they're putting they're putting all kinds of spin on the ball the backspin did not exist prior to the Americans bringing it over you know right. in the in the in the, that, the uh, first uh, British Open after World War One. They were even showing. They're like the British were amazed. They had never seen the backspin on these balls. And then they're like, "Oh, you can't. That's not. That's only some like a novelty that one of you guys are doing." And then like all the Americans were doing it. And then it's like a, it was like a whole thing that they introduced. Yeah. And they also introduced the the fashion. You know, Walter Hagen and them. They're they're wearing these this like kind of a just a whole new style of outfits. You know, they're like just a little more pizzazz. You know, a little more uniqueness to each outfit, mm-hmm. and and that's one of the things that Hagen talks about consistently in his book. I mean, his clothes. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me of uh, Benjamin Franklin and his autobiography. Yeah, if, if and to the listener out there, if you've never read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, it is like one of the pillars of American literature. It is one of the best books you've ever you know you've ever read. It's only like 110 pages long. It's okay. like the shortest autobiography ever. <laughs> but he, it's one of my favorites because. Benjamin Frank, the, the 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 entire theme of his of that runs through the entire narrative of Ben Franklin's story is is uh, uh, his acquisition of books. 
Like he starts at the beginning, like when I was young, I did not have a book. And then I got my first book. And then after I got my first book, I like saved up and I got my second book. <laughs> and he's like, okay. then I found somebody that had a library that had their own personal books. And then I like, like would go and like borrow one of their books, you know, like, and then he's like, by the time I was a grown man and had all the money, I had my own library. And then I like traded books with my friends who had their own libraries. Like it's the entire running theme of his book, of his, wow. of his story. And it's kind of like that with Hagen because with his, like, I wish we had kind of devoted more time to his to that theme, which has been like the undercurrent has been his style and how at first he saw this golfer that he really admired. He thought he was like a really cool dresser Mm. and he just literally imitated. I think we did talk about that. He just literally just copied this guy's outfit. Oh yeah. And then that's, and then so like based off of that, that's when he started adding his own little flourishes. And then he became literally the best golf, the best dressed golfer in the game. Like everybody, like he, when he's going, we're going to be talking about him going to the 1928 British Open today. And he's over there, and I, I don't have it on my notes or anything, but he talks about in here that the British newspapers that didn't even follow golf, mm-hmm. they were in there talking about what he was wearing okay. as though he was like some kind of a fashion model. To introduce to their public what this guy's wearing, like every day it's he's a golf like golf red carpet, exactly. <laughs> he, like every single day, they're like Hagen wore brown socks today with like a white uh, tunic, you know, like this. Like they're literally yeah. following what he's doing, wow. you know, wearing his outfits, and that's his a recurring theme throughout his entire book mm-hmm. is like what he was wearing, how it was like, you know, how he was like the one we actually did talk about the one game where he was more worried about what he was going to wear than he was about the, you know, getting ready for this game. Right. And so that's, you know, so that is a, just an absolute, so he is like that. I mean, he is like, uh, you know, this, you know, just a, so that's one of the things that he really helps to introduce into the game, uh, into, to Britain after world war one is this, I is, you know this, I this because they were wearing like pla- like these like tweed jackets and very res- you know restrained colors and everything, very muted colors. Mm-hmm. And he introduces this like you know kind of a you know a, a flashy style, this American style into the game. You know at this point, so again, it's just another thing. I mean, you could, we could go on and on and on, and we'd never even get to the episode. Yeah. If we did, but, <laughs> yeah. but I'm just saying, like that's what. But that's what you know. That's so. There's a whole new culture shift. Sure. And, you know, it's just one more thing that he, you know, that he brought in, you know, the idea of professionals being, um, you know, uh, valued players, not just like you can't, you got to dress in the horse stable, yeah. you know, that's, yeah. he brought yeah. that too. So anyways, so yeah, we, we left off last week, um, you know, 1926, mm-hmm. you know, we left, we left off with that Bobby Jones match of the century and it just, you know, just how huge that was. Right. And, uh, and then, so and then, so now we're going into 1927 and in 1927, Hagen, you know, basically right off the bat, wins the wins the PGA Championship for the fourth consecutive year. Oh, nice! I mean, just you know, just another another year, you know, yeah. another <laughs> you know, major championship. Uh, yeah. For you know, and so and so he's so um, but you know, we've we've already just kind of mentioned this idea of like this, you know, these these growing rivalries, especially since since World War One. Um, you know, since, since World War One, the British had been getting destroyed in their own open, and this is how they realize that. The Americans are like, t- you know, just completely running out ahead of everybody else, especially them to their horror, because they could always consider themselves the best. Mm-hmm. And so, so this, the, so the, here's the stat right here. Because we got Florida, we can golf all year yeah, round. Absolutely, <laughs> especially once golf started getting huge. Once these bigger tournaments started catching people's, you know, catching yeah. people's interest, and the explosion of course across the country, you know, there, yeah, the golf was yeah. getting huge in America, and everybody's yeah. playing it, so you're getting way better golfers emerge. So, anyways, so um, so the so the like the fact I have right here since 1921, Americans had won every British Open, 
you know, the Open. It had won every British Open except one, which was 1923, and that was the year Arthur Havers beat Walter Hagen by one stroke. Oh. So with the exception of that one-stroke victory right. in 19, 1923, the Americans had won every U.S. Open, or I'm sorry, British Open since, since 1921. We're in 1927. Yeah. So they've been winning every single year. Yeah. They've been cleaning their clocks, and they've been winning, like, U.S. Opens, and, I mean, Bobby Jones winning every U.S. They Open. They can't be and, happy about that. No, exactly. That's the whole idea. So, um... So, and so, uh, so for years they they there so there's so but you know this there's this sort of you know there has been there's this long been this this rivalry between the the Brits and the U and USA, and so that for the longest time they had been talking about um, you know doing like a sort of a standalone you know like a, a, a match play game of with between two teams mm. British versus Americans instead of it being just like the US Open was kind of like a free for all where each guy is kind of representing their own country like yeah. an actual like a, a matchup between two teams the best British golfers versus the best American golfers and they and there was numerous sort of attempts to to set something like that up they there was like three or four times that there was like a sort of like a Ryder Cup kind of a thing but it never nothing was ever really official and for years there had been a a, a a a cup called a Walker Cup, which was a, which was the uh, um, it was an amateur exam idea where it was like the best amateurs in America would face against the, okay. the best British amateurs on a team like match play type of situation. Yeah. And so there, and it was called the Walker Cup. And so they for years they were like kind of like talking about putting something like this together. And so they finally did in, in going into 1927. They started really putting it together in 1926. And so there was a guy named Samuel Ryder. Um, his, you know, according to his like sort of bio, he was a wealthy British seed merchant who put up the money for this silver Ryder Cup uh, championship trophy. Okay. And they outlined the rules. Um, it was a, you know, there's like I say, a match play between two teams. And initially, like the first, so so Walter Hagen became uh, the first. The first uh, Ryder Cup was in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. And it was a. It had to be all pros, so there's no amateurs. So Bobby Jones wasn't on that first team. Okay. Uh. So, but uh, Walter Hagen was the captain. And Hagen went out and picked the best guys that he thought were, you know, suited for this style of play, which right. is like a match play, not like a tournament play. And so, so Hagen chose that team, whereas the British which team was chosen by, uh, by by this like they call it a PGA subcommittee, which must have been some little group that decided mm. who was going to be the British sure. participants. And so the cap, so the Walter Hagen's the captain of the USA, and uh, Ted Ray is the captain of this name we've talked about numerous times. Ted Ray is the captain captain of the first British Ryder Cup team. All right. And so true to you know true to, to make sure they're staying consistent with with with, with what's already going on. Uh, the USA blows out Great Britain in the first Ryder Cup. <laughs> Nine and a half, nine and a half to two and a half. So smokes smokes them on June third, between June third and fourth, nineteen twenty seven. So yeah, we got the picture of the first two British and American uh, Ryder Cup teams up here, and you can see the Americans have the 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 cup. The British have a dog though. They do get a. They do do have a dog. (laughs) That's that makes it. (laughs) It's uh, that's a that's a nice little consolation. It's it's a good looking pup. Um, so Here you yeah, go. You guys pet the dog. So feel I have, better. So you know, kind of also true to form, kind of what we're, to go along with the fashion thing. This, if you like, I was looking up some Ryder Cup stuff today. I read a lot of stuff that I never really even knew about them mm-hmm. about the Ryder Cup. You know, because they still do the Ryder Cup. It's a huge event. It's oh, yeah. a huge event. And so if you when, if you actually go to the, uh, I should have worn my Ryder Cup hat today. Well, you didn't really know we were doing this yeah, specific no, I didn't, I didn't. thing. But so anyways, if you actually go to like the I think it's just like pga.com, but just type in Ryder Cup, look in the you do an internet, you know, Google search, mm-hmm. and there's a whole thing that shows like every Ryder American Ryder Cup team from from 1927 until now there's a team photo. 
And if you look back at like the last like 50 years, like almost every team, they all have their own uniforms. They're all matching, right? right they all have right. like red, white, and blue Ryder yeah. Cup gear yeah. on, right? Yeah. yeah. Or thereabouts. Like they they all have uniforms. Yep. But anyways, so it, it, you know the, the picture we have here, the, the you know they're all wearing different stuff. Yeah. But Hagen talks about it in his book because I think it's like the third year that they did the, it's because the, the the Ryder Cup's like every other year, mm-hmm. and so anyways I think it was like the because Hagen was going to be the Walter the, the Ryder Cup captain from now on till like I think it was 1939 when he left. Okay, and so uh, so anyways it, I think it was in the, like the third Ryder Cup they all wore uniforms. Oh, right, and Hagen picked the uniforms. Uh. And he talks about in his book <laughs> how he did it, how he dressed his guys up. Yeah. Like how they wore their uniforms. I was looking, I wanted to see if I could find an original like 1934 or 35 Ryder Cup mm. jacket because they're so freaking cool. Yeah. Listen, so listen, this is right, this is uh this is from the Hague himself talking about uh like what the uniforms look like. So he says, during my years as captain of the Ryder Cup team, I I insisted that our fellows be fittingly uniformed. Various manufacturers offered knickers and coats free for our use, but I turned them down. Instead, I ordered and paid for beautifully tailored marine blue jackets and pale gray trousers from the Alfred Nelson Company in New York. I obtained permission from the Army to use an official government eagle ensign embossed with cross golf sticks in the insignia Ryder Cup team for the pockets. Although I consistently pick my teams for their game and not their beauty, I must admit we stacked up pretty well in the Bo Brummel department too when we showed up for the Ryder Cup team matches. So, so he actually went to. I obtained permission from the army to use the official government eagle ensign embossed with cross golf sticks, <laughs> instead of like rifles on their on their thing. Yeah. He used their mil, the military with two golf sticks. Wow. So he got permission for it. So it's just kind of cool. Like they, it would be cool. You know, one of the just one as a as a historian, like kind of a some. There's so many things I wish that that sort of modern day people would you know adapt from the past. Like yeah. we talk about Champions Day, I wish that modern day teams would embrace that. I just think it'd be cool to like do something where fans maybe dressed like 1930s gear and they could get in free or have <laughs> half price on ticket on concessions or something. Something that's like you know, just kind of remembering some of the past, and in some yeah. real, in some really mean, you know, cool ways. Not just going, reading an announcement, going, "Today is the day that was Champions Day." Great, you know, cool, everybody. You know, I'm talking about like actually people can kind of participate in it a little bit. And those are like kind of my favorite history things when the modern day kind of gets into it a little bit. But but anyways, the um, but how cool would it be if a modern, the next like Ryder Cup team would like go wearing like you know the 1927. You know, right now we're in 22. Mm-hmm. You know, like the hundredth year, hundredth anniversary. You know, whatever. How cool would it be if they went in this? You know, they followed Walter Hagen's, you know, strategy. You know, like his his outfits here. Mm-hmm. You know, they went with the blue jackets, with the military, with the cross sticks, the gray pants. You know, I just those are the kind of things. It's like it's you know history kind of. Um, it'd just be kind of cool to see that they did like a, you know, hundred year anniversary or whatever. So, so anyway, <laughs> so that's that's his little description of like the. And I just thought they were cool because he's like, right, right. he's like, we got. I turned down all these different people. They didn't know how to dress us. I picked our stuff out, you know. Uh-huh. So, so so anyways, that, that's just a little aside. But um, so yeah, that was the first Ryder Cup. That's our little explanation, you know, it, you know, intro to the Ryder Cup. And uh, so, so that's and that was pretty much you know that's the, your kind of your bulk of the uh, 1927 uh, story. Yeah, they were uh, how many guys on the team? I think we have nine guys in the team. I had yeah. the list. I didn't put it on the slide, but okay. yeah, I mean it's pretty easily found. I think yeah. there was nine guys in each okay. team. And if you look at the and if you look at the list, especially if you've been following the show, 
you'll um you know the names are a who's who of people that we've already talked about. Oh, okay. All those British legends that we've talked about are all yeah. are all on the team. Uh, Gene Sarazen is on the team. Like you know, there's these guys that we've already been talking about for yeah. many times. Are are all on these are on these two teams. Um. So so anyways. Um, yeah, so anyway, so moving on into uh, 1928 now. Right. We're talking about – we're kind of going to the next year. And so 1928 is kind of a cool year too. This is an interesting story for, that we've got to bring out with this. So uh, so in 19, so right off the bat in 1928, Hagen stars in a movie. And the movie is called The Green Grass Widow. Oh, wow. So can you guess what the movie's about? The Green Grass Widow golfers. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> So it's a kind of a I guess boxing. It's, it's a kind of a comedy movie I guess involving so, golfers. We got to slide with the with the, uh, with the stills on it. Uh, is it uh, yeah? Is it the uh, <laughs> where's the green grass? There it is. Yeah. So we have got a couple stills in the screen, and these are like incredibly rare. Like these are I mean I got these out of his book, but you don't. Uh, but the thing about the green grass widow is is that it it's like it says just on the Wikipedia page it says. The movie is said to be lost. Like you can't. I would look for it on eBay. I'm like, or on uh, YouTube. I'm like, man, I want to see this Greengrass Widow. Just for the heck of it. It's a silent film. Yeah. And it's got Hagen, you know, and like the, you know, whatever, however old he is, he's in his young 30s. Some of those movies are lost, lost, lost. The, yeah. The prints all deteriorated. But, but it says it said the Wikipedia says movie is said to be lost, but a copy is said to exist somewhere at the British Film Institute. Oh. So there might be a copy. Okay. It might be at the British Film Institute. So you're saying there's a chance. So they're saying there's a chance, yeah. <laughs> so so anybody who's out there who's listening that's at the British Film Institute or knows anybody that's got a connection <sighs> to the British Film Institute. All right. Um. Yeah, like, you know, let's... Take a look. <laughs> I want to see it. So we kick around, kick around. It's a, it's a silent. It's a silent film. So get that, you know, get, so get be, that up on TMC for us. Because I don't week. really think there's a ton of footage on Hagen back at this. You know, at this time, it's you know silent films and that. Mm-hmm. So it'd be kind of cool. And he's gonna be golfing and you know hitting the ball. And there's some comedy elements to it. So I just kind of like to see it. I think it'd be kind of cool. The one guy looks very Groucho Marxy. That's what I'm saying. When you actually yeah. look at the stills that we have up here on the screen, the guy yeah. it, totally like he's kind of screwing around and. Um, you know, there's, you know, he's so Hagen. So anyway, so Hagen starts off 1928, starring in a movie. It takes him like it takes him a while to film this, and then uh, and then he gets he, so he so he ha- and then so he heads off to England because he's basically headed towards a series of events, and that's where we're kind of going with all this today. Um, so the first thing he shows up to there's a uh, there's a hotel that he's staying at. Mm-hmm. Um, the hotel is called the uh, the Savoy Hotel in London. Okay, and so. Um, so anyway, is so he gets to the Savoy Hotel in London, and the guy who runs the hotel, uh, the guy who runs the hotel is trying. He's like he's he's basically like his name is Bob Harlow, and Bob Harlow is like sort of his publicity agent when he gets over there. Like it's not I think about it. He's not a public. He's he's this guy. He's like he's trying. He's the guy that's he's like. He's like his manager, kind of. Okay. He's like, but he wants to make, just like a manager, he wants to make money off him. And this guy owns the Savoy Hotel. And the Savoy Hotel is kind of struggling a little bit. And so he's sitting there. So he wants, so he's he's like, hey, I'm going to make you a bunch of money for coming over here, but I want you to be like my guy, my my cash cow while you're doing it. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Through this series of events. And so the first thing he does when Hagen gets there, Hagen had bragged to Bob Harlow. Because I guess the Savoy Hotel is like right in the banks of the Thames River in London, which is like the main river that runs through. Hagen had told somebody that he could hit a ball off the top of the Savoy Hotel over the Thames, <laughs> over the Thames River, 
and there was a coal ship, a, a coal a coal tug, I think he called it. Um, you have to know there was a coal barge involved in this. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So uh, he, well. he brags that he could hit a ball over the Thames off the Savoy and hit this coal barge that was like parked on the other side of the Thames. Oh my god! And so and so I love him. Yeah, I know me too. So so and so Bauer goes, okay. He ranges the first thing when Hagen gets off the boat. He's like, all right, you ready to hit this ball over the Thames and hit this? What coal are you barge? drinking? What are you exactly? Hagen's like, I didn't really know about? I was even doing all this, and so. And so the first, so Hagen, so he, the Bob Harlow has it all like set up, like he's like a hundred people up there to watch him <laughs> on top of this roof. Like, all right, give it, me, a, give me a stick, give me a ball. No, he doesn't go. show up. Hagen, like he's like late getting there. Oh. He's kind of screwing around downtown and stuff, right? And so he kind of burns up Bob Harlow, and he's like, God, "Damn it, I had it all set up. You know, you're supposed to come out here for this event." And he, he goes, "Well, let's do it at night because if I miss, he's like, whether I make it or I don't." Nobody will know, you yeah. know, like it's the same thing. You know, it's like nobody will really, I can just claim I, I did it if I'm not successful. And he mm. goes, no, we have to do it where people can see it. Uh. So they, so they wait to the next day. So they re so they move it to the next day. And so Hagen goes up there in front of these people and he does it. Uh. He hits it over the Thames and he hits that coal barge with this, you know, off the roof. So that's like an auspicious beginning for his, for, for the things that come after this. And so, so he does it. So everybody's like, yeah, Hagen, <laughs> like, way, way to go, you know? So he does this. Does He does this thing. And so, so anyway, so the next thing he does is, so anyways, due to this movie and due to this publicity stunt, due to the travel over to, you know, to England where she's got to take a boat and everything, right. Hagen had not played golf in two months, right? And so, uh, so he's, he hasn't done any. He's just, he, you know, he hasn't done played golf he's been living the life of a superstar you know mm-hmm. so anyways so it so at this at this, at this moment so like the next thing that bob harlow sets up for him is this it's a challenge match versus this guy named archie comston and archie comston is like this like really like he's what just kind of looking him up he was uh he was he wasn't like the, he didn't really he didn't really win any major tournaments he wasn't really like a big tournament name um, not like Ted Ray and these guys, but he was from what from all I've read, he was like an excellent match player, like one on one, like point type golf. That that's what he excelled in. And they, and they, in the and so the British are setting him up. They're like, you know, we want to want you to play Archie Comston in this, and they called it a challenge match. And so, the, just to give you an idea how big this was, uh, they this was the bit the prize money was seven hundred and fifty pounds, which equaled thirty seven hundred three thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars. Which is the largest? It's the largest purse ever in you in the in the UK. So this is the, this is bigger than any tournament. This is bigger than any you know you know British Open that they've hosted. Yeah. This seven hundred and fifty pounds. This is the biggest. Um, this is the biggest. This according to Hagen's book, this is the biggest prize they've ever issued. Right, and so you know Archie, he might not be the name that's super familiar with us, but. They're like, we want. Let's see what you can do against Archie Comston. You see, <laughs> and so, so anyway, so the, so interest is massive. And Hagen says right here in the, in the quote to say that to say that Great Britain was excited about this match between Archie Comston and me would be one of the classic understatements of all time. The stake of seven hundred fifty pounds, about thirty seven hundred fifty dollars in our money, was the highest ever paid for a golf match in that country. And more important than that, the British were getting darn tired of having their trophy cup taken of their, out of their country. If Comstock could handle me, fans and experts alike figured they they'd have three possible players: Abe Mitchell, Archie Compton, and George Duncan, capable of keeping the big cup home for a while. It says so much interest centered on the match with Comston 
that temporary membership badges were issued for gallery fans at a fee of 15 shillings. So, um, all right. So, yeah, anyways. So, so yeah. So, um, uh, so, okay, this is, yeah, this is where he gets in this here. So this is the next little, like, sort of ditty that it comes into this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so hold on one second. So he says, uh, um, okay, so, yeah, so, so this is what's kind of key. So so Harlow having, you know, Hagen having showed up late for his, for his you know, this thing for the, the, the hitting the ball off the roof and also for, um, for for other sort of other issues that you know for being late for different events or whatever, right? Yeah. There's this kind of funny story which this becomes the centerpiece of sort of everything that's going on right here. So it's just it's just worth reading it to kind of explain. He Hagen does a far better job explaining than I could. Right, we, before you get into that, yeah. I had the uh, I had the from the Cape Gazette the picture of of Walter on the roof of the Savoy hitting the ball. Do you really? Yeah. Oh my God! There it is. Yeah. Look yeah. at all. <laughs> He's not lying. He's like, there I am. Yeah. So there he is. Yeah. So that's all right. All right. So he was, but that's he was, awesome, but he man. was late for these shenanigans. Damn, nice picture, Walter. <laughs> He's like, here I am. He's just the Thames right behind me. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. That's a great shot. He's all smiling. Yeah. He's like, I did it too. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, so anyways, this was kind of a cool story, right? Yeah. So in the early morning of April twenty sixth. The day prior to the match, I docked, to, I docked to Southampton, some 100 miles from London. Upon our arrival to the, at the hotel in London, Bob Harlow, so this is where it is right here. Bob Harlow produced a Scotland Yard detective who was to be my shadow for the following two days. Mm. Since my, since my, so he's talking about a previous match. Since my late arrival at the Abe Mitchell match in 1926 had created so much unfavorable publicity, Bob had determined I'd be on time for the Compson deal. That fellow Bob that that fellow Bob hired was just the sort of detective I'd always pictured from English fiction. An enormous man standing about six foot three inches, he was heavy and muscular and adorned with a fierce, bristling mustache. He balked, however, when Bob asked him to wear a Sherlock Holmes type hat. Cartoonists and news cameramen had a field day picturing him following me around. So just to pause for a second. So the, Bob Harlow hires this Scotland Yard detective. Hey, can you can you wear this hat? Can to, you, to follow dude, Hagen around. Seriously, you got to wear this hat. <laughs> yeah, they drew the line at that. <laughs> but so he's so he so Hagen's got his own personal like friggin' bodyguard slash like minder to take care of him to make sure he gets to places on time and everything. Oh my right? god! So this is Hagen. He's the greatest guy. He's like he's just this is personnel. Oh, there he's another shot of him on yeah, the roof. Yeah. That is oh, so wow. friggin' cool, man. Yeah, this is a poster you can buy. That from- is. Man, that is that's that's almost the city of champions official poster, dude. Like if you've that's the kind of stuff, those little idiosyncrasies like yeah. that, that should that's like that's our stuff because if you're listening to the show, you see a picture of Walter Hagen on the roof, it's kinda like the Sid Howe thing. Yeah. Like we don't say Sid Howe was not related to Gordy. Like that's I mean, we don't we don't never make that disclaimer whenever we talk sure. about Sid Howe. Right. You know what I mean? Like, if you're listening to the show, you're following the show, you know that Sid that you know that that's a ridiculous question. Yeah. And so that's what I'm saying. Like this right here, anybody that sees this photo, you know what this is. But you we're know talking what I mean? 28 here. The, both of these images say 22. Oh well, both maybe he these. did it before then. Maybe yeah. he did it before. Yeah. Okay, maybe maybe it's not from the Savoy. Did they say a Savoy in there? Yeah, it says a Savoy, but it says both. Maybe of them, the dates both are images, wrong. Both of the images. One actually, the other one said twenty three. Do they have the? Did they have the newspaper actual newspaper stamp on the back? No. Well, this is a poster, right? Well, they, they maybe got the date wrong and because unless one. it's got the, the really the main the main way to date photos besides like little things like looking at their body style and stuff like this or like mm-hmm. different stuff that they're wearing is if they actually have the newspaper clip because what they do is that they would take a picture. 
of the photo, and then yeah. they would in the original photo would have the actual clipping from the newspaper that they used it in glued yeah. to the back. So yeah. that's how you can really tell the date of just for anybody listening at home. If you ever yeah. see an original photo, that's how you can really tell. Make sure you know that that's the date because it's the original photo. It's got the newspapers. Um, and a lot of times they'll actually include the newspaper photo that it was used in in that little sliver on the back so you know for a fact when it was used. Right. So I, I'm not trying to say he didn't do it in 22, but I'm reading right out of his own out of his own mouth. Well, you know the other I mean? the other one is uh, the other one says 23. And you can tell it's the exact same photo shoot because he has the same suit on. But and it, he looks yeah. he looks like a twenty eight. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is is that maybe that the maybe the text or whatever that they got it from yeah, yeah, twenty three. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not too far of a difference to say that a, a sliver yeah. of the of the number eight was right, right. somehow wiped off or yeah. sliced off. Yeah. And that that um and that that twenty three. You know, they they just because they're like but who I love it, that because shot. the other thing too is they're they're, they're whoever put the photo yeah. out online like that is probably thinking. Who the hell's ever going to notice? Right, right. Who the I, hell's ever going to notice 23 or 28? That swing, you can, you can see his full golf swing there, which is just. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that photo. Very, very cool. that, that's like the That's like our official photo of this show. <laughs> One of them. That's yeah, like, I, Hold on to that photo. Let's, let's right. keep the hold on to that photo. Maybe we can even get this poster because yeah. that is, especially that one right there, man. Yeah, that thing that. is so awesome. <laughs> I'm t- that's 28. And if mm-hmm. I mean, even if it's not, if he hit one off in 20, I mean, 23, but he doesn't mention anything about it. Like, <laughs> he doesn't mention anything about it. I was it in there 23. 23 and I was hitting balls off the roof. Yeah, he <laughs> made, he makes a big deal about it in this story here. Yeah. He's like, this is a big, this was a big deal. Like, he didn't say I did it back in 23 and then did no. it in 28. Yeah. You know, I already demonstrated I could do it. He just yeah. like, they were like, because well, he was like, let's do it at yeah, night. Yeah, I'll read you the, yeah, they were, <laughs> yeah, he said, he's like, just in case I miss. Yeah. So he, so anyways, uh, so anyways, yeah. um, yep. Yeah, so I love that bill because anybody that's watching is like, yeah, that's Hagen, you know. So they so they know that that's his. Um, yeah. So anyways, but we got Hagen and Compton. Yeah. So we're yeah Compton. So Compton. so anyways, so so we've got this. He's got this huge Scotland Yard police officer found him, which is just I think I, it's just another goes once again into his sort of personality type because. He's got to have a personal bodyguard to like basically wake him up and follow around, make sure he gets to place on time. You know, that's like juvenile. It's so juvenile, it's hilarious. <laughs> and so the British press played that up massively. And so, so anyway, it says Tom Webster, Europe's foremost sports sports tunist, did a series on us. One of them depicted me deep in the luxurious softness of a Savoy hotel bed, my head wrapped in a towel, an alarm clock perched on the top of the towel ringing out in an ear-splitting blast. He drew the detective waiting patiently outside the door, hoping for my appearance. The Evening Express featured the story with headlines reading, Hagen's Human Alarm Clock, a detective to get him out of bed tomorrow. One day's practice. So, um, Hagen continues, Our match of 72 holes was scheduled for uh, scheduled 36 for Friday and the final 36 for Saturday, April 20th. My pal, the big Scotland Yard detective, got me out of a comfortable bed about 6 in the morning on the first day. After a leisurely breakfast, the limousine places on the first tee shortly before nine. As our Daimler pulled up in front of the clubhouse, out stepped the Scotland Yard giant, followed by Bob Harlow, then me. A crowd of some several thousand people had already gathered, at the, and at the sight of our little group, they burst into shouts of laughter. The British have a keen sense of the ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's got Bob Harlow, him, and this huge – because it had already been played up in the press. So can yeah. you imagine? It's already played up in the press, and then you see them pull up in this Daimler, and there's – Hagen gets out, and he's got this big six – I mean, you can see right here how kind of – you know, he's shorter than anybody else kind of, but – and he's got this big Scotland Yard guy step out of the, the truck with him, and they're like, that's the detective. You know, mm. <laughs> he's got his own bodyguard. And you can see in this little photo you brought up right here, yeah. 
how he's got this personality. You know, he's just walking around laughing and stuff. Is he, is he smoking? Yeah, he's got a cigarette in his left hand <laughs> as he's walking down the golf course. Yes, he does. Um, so, anyways, um, yeah. So they. Uh, so, anyways, this, that's his little. Uh, that's his little story with that. So, um, so now he's talking about uh, what actually happened. Um, so this. So this. So, anyways. In this, so in this match, Walter Hagen is absolutely destroyed. Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> Hagen gets annihilated. In oh. it. That's why I mentioned it was good to mention that he hadn't played golf in two months. He was doing that movie. He's doing the movie, and he hasn't. He actually says he's like, I hadn't played golf in two months. He said I took the worst, one of the two worst beatings I've ever taken in that, I've, that he'd uh-huh. ever taken in his life. And so this is his little story that he that he throws with it, which I think is it was freaking. I thought it was hilarious. So anyways, um, so he so he so he begins. He said. Several incidents of the match amused me. Even while Archie was pulling up his lead, the Moore Park officials conceived the idea of having a tall caddy carrying a big blackboard around with us, on which they marked the standing of the match after each hole. Not once did my name appear on the board. Uh, Another site that because he's they're keeping track of the match wins, and yeah, so he didn't uh, even yeah. get his name on the board. <laughs> he was, that's how bad he's getting destroyed. <laughs> Not once did my name appear on the board. Another site that really got me was Compson's caddy toting a large toy black cat. Archie's mascot and good luck piece. So this guy's carrying this huge black cat. That's not helping his you know, confidence yeah. either. She said, the gallery threw me too. Never in my long career of competitive golf have I been conscious of getting the kind of applause I received at the 15th hole mm-hmm. when I made a fair recovery shot from a trap. I realized that for the first time in my life, I was getting sympathy applause. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. They're like, congratulations. Good job, oh, Walter. Yay. <laughs> good, good for you. You're out of the big tall grass. <laughs> yeah, like you made a good shot for once. He's like, oh, God. He's like, I've never, for the first time in my life, I was getting sympathy oh, applause. Oh, boy. Compson was a great golfer, and he worked hard at his game. He did everything right. He gave me the worst beating of my career, and I had only one statement to make to the British press. When you are laid out good and flat, you must not squawk. So that's his his quote. One quality sparked Archie Archie Compson's play from the moment we stepped on the first tee on Friday. Confidence. He had it right in the beginning, and I certainly did nothing to take it from him. His wonderful control and consistent brilliance on every hole, his aggressiveness, all were remarkable. The hope of of the British took a definite leap upward in looking forward to their open, which was to begin on Monday, May 8th. Archie had put in long periods of intense practice, and it paid off. Yet I've learned through much experience that it's difficult to hold a peak for two events scheduled within such a short time of each other as were our challenge match in the British Open. The Saturday morning, London, the London press was jubilant after our initial 36 holes on Friday. Interviews with Archie quoted him as saying, I am as good as any golfer in the world today, and I am going to prove it. Needless to say, I had no comment to make to that. He proved it to me the next day. Sunday morning, I woke with a headache, and I asked for the morning papers and a bicarbonate with which to digest them. Here are some of the headlines. Hagen submerged. Conquering Compton. The route of Walter Hagen. Uh, American gets his own medicine. Uh, Hagen's ghost is laid. The <laughs> eclipse of Hagen. Hagen takes his psychic. Sports pages quoted Archie as saying, I will play anyone, anywhere for anything. The sedate morning post remarked in editorial, such as a signal victory as that accomplished by Archie Compton in his match with Walter Hagen deserves more than passing celebration. It is an event that must be dear and refreshing to a British golfer's heart, for which for a long time has been uncheered by any challenge to the American ascendancy. <laughs> like, this is, they're going all in on Yeah. This. Someone told me that the great castle at Moore Park used as a clubhouse had once been a favorite rendezvous of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. If so, their memories of it must have been far pleasanter than mine. 
The great Tommy Webster ended his series of cartoons on the Compson match with another picture of me in bed at the Savoy. This time, the huge Scotland Yard detective was astride my stomach using his massive bulk to restrain me while I struggled valiantly to get free. So they're just doing these comic series on Walter while he's there with this guy. It's like a Mutton Jeff, like, you know, like, the, it's like, you know, this, they're doing a series. He's like, he's, there's a whole series of these cartoons. I was, yeah, I'd love to see if they have them out there. Um, with my head protruding at one end of, at, and my feet at the other, Flash, so this is the, so I'll, I'll rewind. <clears throat> the great Tommy Webster ended his series of cartoons on the Compton match with another picture of me in bed at the Savoy. This time, the huge Scotland Yard detective was astride my stomach, using his massive bulk to restrain me while I struggled valiantly to rise, with my head protruding at one end and my feet at the other. Flashes of lightning zigzagged from the alarm clock. The caption, Harlow should have paid Scotland Yard five pound to keep Hagen in bed, 18 and 17. So they're mocking him in this cartoon, too. Perhaps I took solace in my defeat by remembering Bobby Jones' comeback after I had trimmed him 12 and 11. Our match in Florida had taken place in February and March of 1926. He'd gone out that same year after bowing to me in the worst beating he'd ever taken and had won the British Open at Royal Lytham in St. Anne's in the United States National Open in Scioto. There was only one play for me to make, and I made it. I left the memory of the licking I'd taken right where it belonged, on the links of Moore Park. I, I was no temperamental star. I was just a fellow working at golf for a living. Moore Park of necessity must be for me just another 72 holes. So he's like, I had to leave that behind. I took a <laughs> freaking beating. But the good news is he has a chance at redemption. Right. Because just a week or two later here, a couple weeks later, is yeah. the British Open. Game on. <laughs> it is totally game on. And this is like my favorite part, of course, of the story. It's, mm. you know, he just, I mean, this is, again, this is another component which could be like this Walter Hagen movie. He just gets thoroughly thrashed. He gets beat, you know, tore up by the media. They're making comic strips about him. He's like, just he's just got to deal with this humiliation, right? He's got to deal with this beating. He's like the extreme highs of like of hitting the ball across the Thames, you know, he succeeded at that venture to getting crushed in that tournament and then getting mocked because he's got the Scotland Yard detective as a wet nurse walking around <laughs> with him. And then he's you know now he's got kids a chance for redemption. You know, yeah. it's like if you're just honestly, if you're at this point in time, Jamie, if you have money to bet, yeah. Who are you putting your money on for the British Open? I'm gonna put it on Walt. <laughs> Me too. I'm gonna. He's guys. I'm. I'm hoping. I'm. I'm really hoping. <laughs> Me too. I put my money on Walter. I don't care if he got slaughtered or not, dude. That was a freaking exhibition uh, game, dude. He's a yeah. Easter egg and doesn't care about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hell, he's got to have a Scotland what? Yard detective just to wake him up. He's, not even, <laughs> he's, he's barely taking it even seriously, man. So now we're gonna find out what it looks like when you make Walter Hagen mad. All right. Okay. Well, okay. Cause so this is so so this, check this out. This is like Rocky right here. Yeah. This is so awesome. This Out is like Rocky. Like you could play that Rocky theme too, right? Where he's yeah. like, you know, the getting ready for that, you know, the eye of the tiger. <laughs> you know, he's getting it's all ready. Back. Yeah. But he's doing the montage. Like, we're yeah, gonna yeah, need a yeah. montage. You know, where he's getting ready to get through yeah. this tour. So listen, so here you go. So is, so this is getting ready for the British Open. This is this is an amazing quote. Okay, this like, I don't we need this. This might have to go down as one of those little shorts we put up on YouTube or one of these right. little clips. Because this is an amazing, this is an amazing quote. This is amazing. Like I say, picture this just like this "Eye of the Tiger" soundtrack. But maybe we can do that. Maybe we can do some kind of editing with this, with this "Eye of the Tiger" background. Okay, because right. this is, I think, an amazing preparation for All the right. for this tournament. The newspapers had a few things to say about me that week too. After they'd hashed and rehashed the Compton victory, most writers insisted I was more, I was more quiet and a bit more serious. Well, they were right on part of it. I was serious about one thing winning the British Open. 
That defeat by Compson had been a terrific blow to my pride. I'd had the smile wiped off my face temporarily, but I hadn't lost my sense of humor. I had come, to, had come face to face with the very obvious fact that no trickery or funny stuff was going to win a third British Open for me. This time I'd let the other boys take the risk. I intended to play, safe, to play for safety all the way. I had one week to get some badly needed practice. On Monday I left London and checked into the, to the Guilford Hotel about seven miles from the golf links at Sandwich, where the Open would begin on Thursday. This famous old resort hotel standing only 100 feet from the sea, high in the Dover coast, was an ideal place for me to follow the routine I'd set for myself. I really went to work. I played endless rounds of golf, existed on a rigid diet, spent numerous sessions in a Turkish bath, and tried to put the beating I'd taken from Archie completely out of my mind. I locked my little black book in my trunk and even refused the tempting, tempting phone calls. Believe me, the black book and the telephone numbers I'd collected in Great Britain made that last bit of business hard to take. <laughs> in such a romantic setting, I felt somewhat selfish enjoying it alone, particularly since I had, in London the previous week, introduced Douglas Fairbanks Jr. to a very lovely British girl who had been my companion for a number of parties. Young Doug was in London with his dad, who was setting up his new Fairbanks International Company. Doug Jr. was to star in his dad's productions in both the Fairbanks's, had assured my beautiful girlfriend a chance for a movie career. With such powerful competition, my withdrawal from circulation just at the time promised to be a catastrophic for my romantic life. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's his preparation. <laughs> he said, I don't put my black book away. <laughs> After all the time, he's like, this is serious. I'm done. Right. My, he goes, do you have any idea how serious I took this? I had to put my black book away. And <laughs> Douglas Fairbanks is in town. Yeah. The biggest movie star in the world. He's like, you know. I could have been rolling with Doug. Douglas Fairbanks, and, and especially he introduced him to these girls. And he's yeah. like, I got Douglas Fairbanks in London right now, ready to go party. They're, and they're calling him going, where are you at, Walter? What where the hell? And he's like, down? I got to get ready for this open. And they're like, what are you talking about? You've never needed to get ready for a yeah. tournament before. And he's like, no, I just took the worst three. You know, he's like, you know, he's like, that's yeah. what I'm saying, this eye of the tiger. Like, I have the tiger. They got freaking, he's like, puts his black book away, <laughs> playing golf, drinking a freaking uh, mimosa at breakfast, probably, <laughs> whatever. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's Walter getting ready for it. That's what yeah. I just love his little, like, prep. He's like, the biggest thing I had to do was put my black book away. You think that's easy? He's like, try telling it to my dating life. It wasn't yeah. easy. Uh, oh. So anyways, that's him getting ready. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I say, the eye of the tiger. That's Walter Hagen, eye of the, eye of the tiger. So anyways, so now that the tournament itself. So um, so Hagen continues. It's basically sort of a continuation of what he was just leading up mm-hmm. to. Eight times from 1920 to, through 1929, I played in the British Open Championship. The first time I finished 53rd, then I finished sixth once, third and second once, and four times I won it. I'm proud for proud of the whole record, but I know my greatest thrill came from the win at Sandwich. I believe people, British people appreciated that win most too. I had received tremendous acclaim in 1924 when I won at Hoy Lake, but there was increased warmth and sincerity to the applause, the cheering, the quick words of congratulations, and the eager smiles from the huge galleries following me around when I won in 1928. So fast forward a little bit here. Um, so, uh, so, he, so th- this what's kind of cool is in the last nine holes of the course mm-hmm. when he was like winning this and that, the the Prince of Wales is following him, oh. like in the gallery, he's following wow. him, right? And so at the end of the, ter- at the after he won the British Open, which he you know spoiler alert, he tells us in there he's like yeah. after I won this thing, right? Um, so it would have been a wise bet to put your money on him, yeah. Um, so the Prince of Wales 
gives him the trophy, like presents oh. him the trophy, right? So this is like, so there's, we've already, this, this is what's, what's awesome. I just want to pause for a second because there's another quote to read. But this is a guy, I, I, I forgot to even write down how old he is. He's in his young 30s, right? Right. Uh, 33 years old in 1925, so he's in his mid-30s now. Sure. 38, 35, 36 years old okay. approximately, right? Yeah. So this is a guy that, like, we've already, we have spent the last, what, what episode are we on right now? Episode 13. 13 of, of Walter Hagen. Every single episode has been some kind of a tournament or sure. championship or some kind of, sometime, some kind of event, right? And this is a guy, he's already had the thr- the extreme thrills of victory to the rid- most ridiculous degree, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just just tournament championships and all over the place like this, right? And then he takes this he takes this like beating from Archie Compton, Compton, and he's just all of a sudden now he's like you know a man sort of on a mission to win this right. And what's so interesting about this like, sort of next quote we're going to read this next little bit is is just like that there was more in the tank of like of like a higher level he could get to. You know what I mean? He'd already he'd already this is his third British Open. Right. He's won four straight PGA championships. Yeah. He, there, that the fact that there's a higher level of fame that he could get to at this point, right. and that's what's about to hit here. Oh. The Prince of Wales insists on handing him the trophy himself, <laughs> right? He's like, I, and he follows Walter, and he's like, this is this, and so in the but wait, so that's where I'm, I'm foreshadowing because what we're about to experience here is another gear. If we already thought that Walter Hagen was a, was a star or a superstar at this point, wait till you see the follow. Wait till we hear. The, the remaining, the, the next level gear that he gets up to for Turning like eight. Up to 11. Exactly. He's on a, the 11 on the superstar <laughs> scale. And <laughs> you're right. going to hear this, like, because this, like, this was nothing. The British press appreciated this. They saw him. They just mocked him. Taking they, they, At this point, they already, they, he was a star, a superstar in Britain, too. They just, they, they had the largest tournament or largest exi- uh, exhibition amount ever with him and Archie Compton. He gets destroyed. Right, and he, and the, he's, he just hits the ball off the top of the Savoy across uh, the Thames, yeah. which is art as newspaper fodder. Oh yeah, right. He loses to Archie Compton. They mock him for a week. Yeah. Right. He bounces back and wins the British Open two weeks later. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy's a legend. Into their eyes, they're like that. They, they you don't have to. If you're living at that moment and you see it, you're like, we just mocked this guy for a week, and he bounces back and wins the British Open right in our face right <laughs> he takes the british open like this like they're like this guy is awesome right he took yeah. the he took the abuse in good humor mm-hmm. and he came back and threw it right back in our face a week later right like here's why do you like this you know so anyway so this is just like basically listen to the next the higher level gear he gets into for how big because these people recognize that they're yeah. like this guy's already a star. He gets destroyed. He comes back and shows us what a star he is. Yeah. Right. So anyway, so he, this is what he says. So uh, so the so the Prince of Wales gives him this cup, and this is what the Prince of Wales tells him while he hands him the trophy. He says, "We're getting a little jealous about the cup," he said in his short talk. But we're but we like it going to the best player. We hope the Americans will continue coming over so that we may have the opportunity eventually of putting it over. I thanked him in the gallery for the warmth of their hospitality and expressed my happiness at winning their great trophy again. I don't want to bore you, I said, but I'm going to keep on coming over. That was my first meeting with the Prince of Wales, but it was not to be my last. We became firm friends and spent many hours together, both on the links or off. Just, you know, Prince of Wales, boys now. (laughs) Boys, you know, Balmoral, wherever. Uh You know, this is their, you know, that's where they're, you know, this is now his boy. 
So that's one thing. <laughs> she just added that new buddy from sure. this. New added a new buddy from this. The day after the championship, I returned to London with the British trophy once again in my possession. The press was a bit more pleasing to me this time, carrying such streamers as Hagen's great victory, Prince watches Hagen, a Bonnie golfer, the golf blue ribboned, Hagen's farewell. Like it's like they, they now he's a hero in the British mm. press. They love him. And we've already seen in the earlier years when he first went over there, they were mocking him too, right? Yeah. So now he's beloved there. Yeah. So and the Daily Mail commented, all over the world at this moment, golfers are engaged in simultaneous acts of act of homage. They are taking off their hats with the most generous and courtliest of flourishes to Walter Hagen. <laughs> like let me just read this again real quick. This is this is their ode to Walter Hagen, yeah. the Daily Mail. And that so all over the world, at this moment, golfers are engaged in a simultaneous act of homage. They are taking off their hats with the most generous and courtliest of flourishes to Walter Hagen. Like he just they're he, they're doffing their caps to him around the world uh-huh. for his for what like it was great that he just took the beating of his life like this yeah. and came out and just stuck it right in everybody's face, you know. Like they they're like they're just taking their caps off at this point. The greatest of golfers, right? So Hagen continues, I asked Bob Harlow to arrange a return match with Archie Compton in America, and together we persuaded him it would be a great moneymaker. So so he's heading back to America, and Archie Compton's coming with them to kind of repeat what they did in Britain. So, But that's not going to be the point of what we're about to talk about here. That's just an aside. So so Compton comes over with Bob Harlow. So he sailed on the same boat with us on our return. Arrangements were made by cable for 36 holes at Boston and 36 at Westchester Biltmore in New York. Our ship docked in New York on June 8th, and the welcome was really tremendous. A wonderful band at the dock kept playing among my souvenirs, and thousands of golf fans and thousands more who didn't, didn't know one club from another lined the streets. The late mayor, Jimmy Walker, welcomed me at the city hall following a long motor ride down Fifth Avenue with police on motorcycles and enthusiastic children waving and yelling at me. At the city hall, Mayor Walker presented me with the key to the city of New York. Uh-huh. We then proceeded to the Biltmore Hotel where the president of the Westchester Biltmore had the presidential suite packed with all my pals and decorated with huge floral gifts and my two cases of selected bottles of imported Hipsonica, which I had managed to mix in with my many and assorted pieces of luggage. So we smuggled in some liquor, right? (laughs) So, And then when they they unpacked the luggage... He's got some liquor with him and his pals that are all waiting for him in his hotel when he gets there, right? <laughs> one one bit of business at the dock. This is a, this is one of my favorite stories the entire bit. One so uh, so he says one bit of business at the dock just before. And it, just remind the listener, L.A. L.A. Young is going to figure into the story. L.A. Young is the is his partner in the golf okay. in the in the uh, Hagen Golf um, Clubs industry, right? This is this is it's his partner. So one bit of business at the dock just before we walk down the gangplank. I had also brought a magnum of very fine old champagne, which I had placed in. See, when they smuggled it, this is the middle of prohibition. Yeah. Liquor's illegal. Mm, not yeah. allowed to have liquor, but it's not illegal in Britain, so right. he can bring back whatever the hell he wants, right? So he's bringing back some fine champagne. One bit of business at the dock, just, just before we walked on the gangplank, I had also brought a magnum of very fine old champagne, which I had placed inside the velvet lined trophy case belonging to the famed British trophy. I asked Mayor Walker to carry the nude trophy ashore for me. While I handed the locked trophy case containing the champagne to my old friend L.A. Young from Detroit. <laughs> I told him to meet us later at the hotel with the trophy. 
So this poor guy thinks he's got the trophy in the case. Don't shake it up too much. Don't shake the trophy. <laughs> L.A. Young was delighted with the task of carrying what he presumed to be the British trophy through customs. He had some difficulty since he had no key, and customs officials like to see what's being brought into this country. Uh, However, he finally made it and arrived, hot and disheveled, about an hour after our party at the Biltmore Hotel was well underway. I complimented him, opened the case with the key from my pocket, and poured everybody a taste of the sparkling bubbly. L.A.'s face was really red when he saw what he'd worked so hard to get through customs for me, particularly since he did not indulge. However, he took the joke gracefully. The next, the next afternoon, Archie Compton and I played an exhibition match at the Westchester Biltmore against Gene Sarazen and Johnny Farrell. He goes on about the Compton match, but it's just that, dude, L.A. Oh Young God. carries this case. That's he great. carries the trophy case. It's full of shit. It's got champagne in it, and he, it's gotta, he's got to get it through customs for him. It doesn't even know. I mean, yeah. this is a movie yeah, script. Yeah. Yeah. This is a movie <laughs> script, man. He's coming back through New York. He gets on the gang. So let's just, just in it, to summarize it, kind of end this yeah. like this. He gets back to, to New York, comes down the gangplank. There's a basically ticker tape parade through New York. He gets the key to the city. The the he's you know he's his luggage is unpacked at the richest hotel in town. His buddies are already there waiting for him. Yeah. And he the the luggage he brings back, they're all drinking like bootleg you know uh, bo, you know bathtub gin or whatever. Yeah, yeah. They're they're drinking better stuff than that, yeah. but you know they're dry, drinking stuff that's being smuggled from Canada. And shit, he's got a suitcase full. He got a luggage full of liquor uh. that he brought from Britain to celebrate the, his arrival. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they're opening up the suit, the luggage. They're drinking, having fun with the, the in the hotel with the stuff he brought in his in his luggage. And poor his business partner, poor L.A. Young, is bringing the real stuff. Yeah. The, the champagne smuggled in the trophy case. So he shows up. He's like, Walter, I got your, you know, your your luggage here. You know, your trophy case. And yeah. they're like, Oh, you're just in time, L.A. We were looking to get that champagne going. <laughs> you know what he said? Perfect you know, timing. Perfect my timing. Perfect your timing is so perfect. Like this is the guy. This is this is I'm saying like this yeah. is the next level of stardom, man. This guy is living a life that mm. is just unbelievable, man. Like he's an international superstar. Like t- took that stardom up to an eleven. <laughs> you know, we're t- again we're talking about you know 1928. This is you know the you know the, the the a lot of people talk about like the Babe Ruth and the 1920 like the 1927 murders row Yankees one of the best teams ever and that so this is like you know Babe Ruth's heyday yeah and Hagen's living like this it's yeah. the Roaring Twenties it's another example of what's going on in this country you know like this is one of these guys that's faces in the print who's living this kind of larger than life lifestyle just a beloved sporting figure yeah. and is shaping America into like. The place that it, you know, became, you know, I mean, he's an he's just one of these guys that is just part of the fabric, which, you know, wove together the American culture. So I love him. And yeah. That's, oh, yeah. I he's, love a, Hagen, he's, he's a riot. God. He's uh, got to find that movie. I know we got to find anybody at that British. What do we say is a British uh, film institute? Film institute, yeah. Uh, yeah, I want to see it because that's. I mean, there's. I don't. To my knowledge, I don't. I mean, maybe there's a couple of things with Hagen in video, but I think he's probably older. Right. But this is 1928. You know, this is. I wouldn't say he's peak Hagen based on that photo that we just saw. He had a little bit of a little little pouch around his yeah, belly, yeah. but yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little yeah. gut going. <laughs> Living the high in the hog, though. Smuggling a. He did tube. talk. <laughs> he does talk about after this. He's like, I got. I realized I had to keep myself in a little bit better shape. Yeah. It, it sounds like 1928. You know, late 1927 learning, early 1928. Learning some lessons. Yeah, it sounded like late 27, early 28. He was getting a little getting a little lazy on the on the physical exercise. Yeah. You know, but. 
but he, he, he said, why wouldn't you? The guy's a freaking megastar yeah. and just winning championships everywhere he goes. All right. So uh, what we'll do more with Walter again next time, right? All right. We'll do it all again next time. Next week? <laughs> next week. All right. All right. <laughs>